0: Morning. Children, you may be dismissed at this time. Children, you have the privilege of sitting under a far better teacher than the grown ups do this morning. It's a good looking crew. But we've got the Word. I'm excited about the Word. Our Word this morning again includes another wonderful Word about God's unbreakable Word and God's unrivaled. Son, So please take out your Bible and turn back to John chapter 10. Our last time in the wonderful John chapter 10 verses 22 through 42 this morning. You can find that starting on the bottom of page 896. John 10, 22 through 42. Last week we looked at the doctrines of the Good Shepherd's grace. We made the case that Christ is precious... Because Christ is gracious. And remember, John seventeen three, knowing God is eternal life. If that's true, and if Christ came that you may have abundant life, if He is the Good Shepherd, the Great I Am, the truth that sets you free, the light of the world, the giver of the living water, the Holy Spirit, the Holy One of God, with the words of eternal life, the bread of life, and on and on and on we week ago. Then it should not be hard to see that there's nothing more important than knowing this Christ and knowing that you know this Christ. There is nothing more important that you believe and have life in His name. This eternal life, abundant life that will never end and that begins now. And we're coming now to another, the end of another section in John. All that I just quoted in that list came going backwards just from John chapters 10, 9, 8, 7, and 6. We just had these grand claims, one after another, about Christ, here's who I am. These grand claims of Christ that reveal to us Christ. So this is a section of revelation. But remember, this is also the section of opposition. As Christ escalates the revelation, the religious authorities escalate the opposition. This is Christ, his claims, and conflict. And we see a lot of that again today as we wrap up this section moving into the last of the seven signs in John, the clearest of the signs, the raising of Lazarus to life. So come back next week as we begin John chapter 11. So Christ is life, but Christ is also conflict. Christ this morning is going to again reveal who he is, and the response is going to again be unbelief, the chief of sins, the sin of death and damnation. But every single week, we are simply trying to get you to consider Christ, to we're trying to take him, who he is, his identity, his claims, and to help ourselves and help you take those claims more Seriously, the preaching of the word. I am here for the purpose of, of seeking to hold up Christ, open up God's word, exposit that word, to expose that Christ in prayerful hopes that God would work by His Spirit through His word to show you Christ. Have you seen Him? Have you found rest for your soul, inward peace, contentment? Joy, regardless of all the circumstances swirling around here. How was your week this week? Some probably pretty good, some probably pretty terrible. What happened throughout your week? How and how well did you respond to whatever happened throughout your week? I've told you before how I, just, I love the brutal honesty of Scripture. Scripture never sugarcoats things. There is no prosperity gospel promise of comfort and ease if you just believe. Life is hard, the world is broken, and our hearts are a mess. The Puritans were also brutally honest realists. In the preface to his wonderful The Glory of Christ, John Owens begins by describing this present life. How do you tend to think of this present life? Here's his description. Tell me if this rings true to your experience this week or recently or these last two years. Owens says, Temptations, afflictions, changes, sorrows, dangers, fears, sickness, and pains do fill up no small part of life. And on the other hand, all our earthly relishes, refreshments, and comfort are uncertain, transitory, and unsatisfactory. Everything in which we are concerned has the root of trouble and sorrow in it. All things, almost in all nations, are filled with confusions, disorders, dangers, distresses, and troubles, wars, and rumors of wars, with tokens of farther approaching judgments. Could that not have been written today, about today, about our hearts and our world But lots of people complain about that. Owen doesn't care to complain about all the shortness, vanity, and misery of human life. His concern is only the relief that we may obtain from all of those evils. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Right? Isn't that what we want? Relief from that whole list? Temptation, affliction, sorrow, danger, fear, sickness, pain, disorder, trouble, war, on and on and on. Relief how? Beholding by faith the things that are unseen. That's Owen's claim. By beholding that which is spiritual and eternal, by ultimately beholding the glory of Christ. Owen goes on to say, catch this, what if this is true? Owen says, one real sight of the glory of Christ will give us full relief in all these matters. Come on, church. If that's true, what if one real sight of the glory of Christ could give us the relief from everything? From your relationship troubles, from your work troubles, from your financial troubles, from your health troubles, from your internal, spiritual, emotional struggles. What if one sight of the glory of Christ is what we need in all of those things? Because that's not just Owen's claim. That's Christ's. Claim That is the abundant life and the eternal life that Christ has so clearly been offering in this text. That's what we're after. That's what I want for me, for my family. That's what I want for you. That is why we turn to this text to, again, by the grace of God, seek to behold the the glory of Christ through his word and live. Is that what you want? The abundant life that is found in Christ because it's why Christ has come. It's what he's doing at this in this text. So, let's look again at further revelation from the one who is claiming to be the answer to your everything. We have five points again this morning, not those five this time. We will touch on them again in point 2, of course, but I wanted to try and keep it really simple this morning. There's nothing brilliant about these points, there's nothing creative and catchy. I um, spared you alliteration uh, this week. Jesus is telling us who he is. It's that simple. He is telling us that he is the Messiah. And more than that, that he is the Son of God. God himself. That's it. That's the text. Five points to help us see his glory this morning. Point number one, unbelief is dumb. Point number two, but God is gracious. Point number three, God is one. Point number four, God's word is unbreakable. And point number five, God's Christ is compassionate. Let's read the text and then we're going to work through it under these five headings. John chapter 10, we're going to pick up and read starting in verse 22 through 42. But this is the most important part. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. If you would bow with me, let's pause, let's go to the Lord, and ask for his help in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would show us Christ. Christ. Father, we truly believe that a sight, a true sight by faith of the glory of Christ is what we need. He is where we find abundant life. He is where we find joy and rest and peace. Uh, Father, how many of us need joy and rest and peace this morning? Father, help us to believe that those things are not found in a change of our circumstances, but that those things are found in Christ, who is life. Father, show us Christ. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I ask that you would now work by your Spirit through your word. I ask that you would help both the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Father, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, unbelief is dumb. You might think that point is dumb. Fair enough. But at least it's clear and you will remember it. Look at verse 22. We have had a scene shift. We've seen before that John isn't all that concerned with chronology. John's point is not to get too particular and precise with time. John's point is Christ. And one of the ways that he points to Christ is by structuring much of the action of the first part of the book around these various Jewish festivals. We've talked about the big three. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover. There's the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost. And there's the Feast of Booths. Jesus has generally been operating in the context of the Feast of Booths since all the way back in chapter 7. Chapter 6 was during Passover. Then John jumps ahead six months without telling us. Basically skipping the whole of Jesus' ministry in Galilee all the way to the Feast of Booths in chapter 7. And then John sticks largely there in chapters 7, 8, 9 and the first half of chapter 10 until now, until verse 22. Because here we read that it was the time of the Feast of Dedication. That's a different feast. So what is that? When is that? Well, this was not one of the big three that was commanded in God's law. This one was a more recent development. We know this feast today as Hanukkah. The Feast of Dedication began in the intertestamental period, the period between the Old and New Testaments. This started in the year 164 B.C., uh, after Alexander the Great basically conquered the known world, he died young at the age of 32. I'm 38, and I can't even get my act together to write one book. Um, he conquered the world by 32, thus the name. Great. But. After his death, no one could follow him. No one could hold things together. So Alexander the Great's one great empire is split into four empires generally given to four of his generals. One of those was Seleucius, and thus the Seleucid Empire began. And then about a hundred years later and a number of kings later, we get to Antiochus Epiphanes, and Israel is part of his empire. He was Greek, But he was kind of a jerk. The Greek rulers before him had somewhat sought to respect and protect Jewish identity and tradition. Antiochus did not. Big mistake. He began to outlaw many Jewish practices. He began to persecute those who resisted. And eventually, he even sets up a pagan altar to Zeus inside the very temple itself. Big mistake. The Jews revolted, and under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, maybe even a better name than Alexander the Great, the Hammer, the Jews recaptured the temple, they re-consecrated it to God on the 25th of the month of Kislev, which is basically December, and the people celebrated their victory for eight days. Thus, this feast, the Feast of Dedification, the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. Hanukkah just comes from the Hebrew word for to dedicate. Why did we run through all that? I uh, like history, and you should know you should know history, and so you're welcome. I've just helped you. But it's a chronological marker that John is using. We are now somewhere two months after where we were in verse 21. It has been anywhere from one month to two months later. There has been a gap. It's now winter. Some argue that there is spiritual significance to that. John doesn't generally tell us much about the weather and things. So is he telling us that there's winter, there's spiritual darkness? Uh, I don't know. The main point is that the controversy and the conflict has not settled at all. Whatever has been going on in this intervening two months or so, things have not improved for Jesus. The Jews have not all of a sudden started to love Jesus and believe In Jesus. And so we see them pick right back up where they left off two months earlier in verse 24. Jesus is walking around the temple, the colonnade of Solomon. It's like a a covered porch with pillars on the east side of the complex. And the Jews, remember, the religious authorities surround Jesus. Seems to be an aggressive surrounding of Jesus. This is antagonistic. And they ask him, how long? Will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That first phrase that we read in the English there, keep us in suspense, it's notoriously difficult to translate in the Greek. Literally, it says something like, how long will you take away our life? And then it gets translated somewhat Loosely and figuratively. I I couldn't figure out how best to translate it. But it's much more negative than just keep us in suspense. Some translators translate it fairly loosely as, how long will you continue to annoy us or to bug us or bother us? And, And the point in the Greek seems to be that they're not asking this question because they're curious. They're asking because they are accusing. Remember, this whole section started all the way back in chapter 7, verse 1, with the note that the Jews... Or remember, the Jews is not just Israelites. It's not an ethnic term. It's a religious... This is the religious authorities. All the way back in 7, one, we see the Jews were seeking to kill him. This is the escalating conflict section of the letter. This is characterized by unbelief. But they at least raise the question that matters. If you are... The Christ, and that's the only question that matters. If this man is the Christ, everything changes. If he is the Christ, your entire life should revolve around him. If he is not the Christ, then he's nothing, and you should leave now, and I should quit my job. The identity of Jesus is the ultimate question. There's no middle ground. He's everything or he is nothing. And your response to him is your answer to this ultimate question. Who is Jesus? Is he the Christ? Tell us plainly. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, I have. I have. I told you. And you do not believe. And here's the unbelief. Here's the unbelief that is dumb. Why is it dumb? I'm using that term on purpose. It's just, yeah, you can't miss it. Well, keep reading. Look at what he says. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus is saying, I have told you. It's completely clear who I am. It's completely clear what I have claimed. Now, Jesus is not saying that he had specifically said in public, I am the Messiah. He hadn't actually. He intentionally was avoiding publicly claiming that title. He told the Samaritan woman privately, but he wasn't running around publicly proclaiming himself the Messiah. Why? Well, it was because of all the baggage and confusion surrounding the title. Jesus wasn't proclaiming himself the Messiah because of the expectations at the time. They were largely looking for a political Messiah. After Judas the Hammer... After this brief period of freedom, Israel once again fell under the rule and reign of the Romans. For most, the expectation what they wanted was a Messiah who would come and get rid of the Romans. They wanted an activist Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah. Jesus wanted nothing to do with that. And isn't it ironic that the way more and more churches today are proclaiming and portraying Jesus, activist Jesus, liberator Jesus, overthrower of the oppressor Jesus, and on and on and on. Isn't it ironic that those are the specific things that Jesus was trying to avoid being identified as by not publicly proclaiming himself the Messiah? You see, if life is found in believing in Christ, you better make sure you understand the Christ in whom you are believing. Because if you get him wrong, you miss the life that is only found in him. And so Jesus was very careful to separate himself from all of these other expectations because he didn't want us to miss the main thing. He didn't want us to miss that he came that we may have abundant life. Verse 10. That he came to give eternal life. Verse 28. How? That he came to lay down his life for the sheep. Verse 11. So Jesus, the helper of the poor, and the feeder of the poor, and the liberator of the oppressed, sounds nice. But what if a focus and an emphasis on that leads us to miss Jesus, the Savior of souls? That's the main thing. This is why it's kind to be clear. This is why Jesus was careful to be clear. He doesn't publicly proclaim himself the Messiah because they misunderstood who the Messiah would be and what he would come to do. But wait! Look at verse 25 again. He says that he did tell them. And this is what we opened with. Jesus didn't say the words, I am the Messiah... Because they would have misunderstood. They would have missed that which is heavenly and eternal for that which is etern- for that which is earthly and temporal. Instead, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the bread of life. And on and on and on. And so he very much did tell them. And he very much did show them. He gave sight to the blind. I am the light. He supernaturally fed 5,000. I am the bread of life. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And so Jesus is saying, I told you and I showed you it is clear who I am. The character of my person, my words, and my works make it undeniably clear who I am. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is why unbelief is dumb this is why i'm using a dumb simple point but it's it's dumb because the truth is so obvious and clear and evident right you come to me after the service and tell me oh did you know by the way that the earth is flat right i am correct to respond to that that is dumb why because the truth is obvious clear and evident evidence abounds Physical evidence, mathematical evidence, astronomical evidence, observational evidence. But if you've ever gotten into an argument with someone committed to this position, you have found that such evidence has little effect. But that doesn't make the position any less dumb. Loved it a few years ago, right? North Carolina, Tar Heels, great. Um, We loved it a few years ago when a bunch of Duke players came out talking about how they believed in the flat earth. They're like, look, here's Duke's education, right? Here's all these guys proclaiming the flat earth theory. It's a a, a joke. But the point is, obvious evidence, clear, you should believe it. In the same way, the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, John is giving us evidence, 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 making it abundantly and undeniably clear who this man is. And so it's dumb to disbelieve that which is abundantly evident. But, Don't forget chapter 9. Don't forget the sign that leads to all of this. Jesus gives sight to the blind, also then revealing the blindness of those who think they see. The Pharisees in 9.39. It's not just that they won't see, it's that they can't see. Remember, this is the doctrine that we discussed last week. The doctrine of total depravity, which includes total inability, which is in effect total blindness. Romans 1 tells us that that, what, that which can be known about God is plain to all in the things that God has made. But we all of us, in our sin, willfully reject and deny that knowledge. And trade the worship of God for the worship of, of created things. Trade His glory for the worship of inferior things. Listen, that's what unbelief is what i want us to see here is that unbelief is the sin it's the main one it's it's dumb but more than that it's it's demonic it's it's damning i quoted spurgeon a while back on unbelief but i think it's a really helpful quote what what is unbelief really well here's what spurgeon says is it not a sin for a creature to doubt the word of its creator is it not a crime and an insult to the divinity for me, an atom, a particle of dust, to dare deny his words? Is it not the very summit of arrogance an extremity of pride for a son of Adam to say even in his heart, God, I doubt thy grace, God, I doubt thy love, God, I doubt thy power. Oh, sirs, believe me, could you roll all sins into one mass? Could you take murder and blasphemy and lust and adultery and fornication and everything that is vile and unite them all into one vast globe of black corruption? They would not equal, even then, the sin of unbelief. This is the monarch sin, the quintessence of guilt, the mixture of the venom of all crimes, the dregs of the wine of Gomorrah, the masterpiece of Satan, the chief work Of the devil. This is what unbelief really, really is. You're wrong, God, creator of all, all powerful, all wise. I think you're wrong, God. That's absurd. That's wickedness. That's sin. That's our problem. It's not just that they would not see, but they could not see in their Sin. They could not see Christ for who he is in all his manifest goodness and glory. They could not see that which is most clear. Theirs is a willful, culpable, wicked unbelief. And again, it's easy to pile on the Pharisees, right? Let's again let's always be careful. We were no better, and we often are no better. How dumb that I Whose job is to preach and proclaim God's grace? How how, how dumb can I, uh, preacher and minister of the Word of God, can know the abundant life that is found in Christ? Preach that abundant life that is only found in Christ, and then, like an hour later on a Sunday, be seeking that abundant life somewhere else. Can can still pursue sin and self when I stand here and proclaim Christ, who is life, Christian? How foolish! that we can know God and His grace, have all of His promises of good, and yet still doubt and distrust Him. The cross, the Son of God Himself, dying because you love me? Ah, uh, just not sure if you love me because I'm sick right now. It's, it's unbelief, plain and simple. We have to see the foolishness of unbelief, and we have to see it firstly and chiefly in ourselves. And because our unbelief is so ridiculous and so evil. Our only hope is point number two. Point number two. God is gracious. This was last week. Christ is precious because Christ is gracious. And we once again see this important gospel order. We start with man and we start with sin. Lots of people like to start with man right now, but it's not starting with man in the same way that the Bible does. When the Bible starts with man, it starts with our sin. Man creates a problem. Man cannot solve that problem. Now in point two, we move to God. The subject has shifted from man to God. Man creates a problem. The gospel is that God solves man's problem. God in his grace does something about man in his sin. God is gracious. And remember, not gracious as in polite or courteous or nice, but gracious as in giving grace. Sovereignly giving it. Freely giving it. Taking the initiative in giving it. Assuring that it is received. God's grace is God giving us good when we choose and deserve bad. God's grace is God being kind to us and favorably disposed towards us, though we rejected Him and made ourselves his enemies. Grace is God giving undeserved, unsought good. And what we're trying to remind ourselves is that since God Himself is the summum bonum, remember Latin, fancy, just the highest good, since God Himself is the highest good, ultimately, God's grace is God giving us Himself in and through Christ. That's life. That's John seventeen three. Knowing God is eternal life. And that's what we see in verses 27 through 29. Maybe the clearest, most condensed explanation of the doctrines of grace in Scripture. Everyone loves the idea of grace, but what do you mean? What do you mean by grace? What is grace? Well, these verses go a long way in telling us, which makes these verses really, really important. Because church, Christian, there's nothing more important for you to know than God in His grace. We cannot emphasize grace enough. J.C. Ryle writes on these verses, The importance of the doctrines contained in this text cannot, in my judgment, be overrated. Completely agree. Christ is precious because Christ Is gracious. And the more you can see him as absolutely gracious, the more you will treasure him as infinitely precious. We've already just seen the total depravity in there and our ridiculous unbelief. Well, then these three verses compactly and clearly reveal points two, four, and five of the doctrines of grace as well. Look at verse 26. Note the order. Again, Jesus is explaining. He is teaching to them. He he, Look at what he tells them about their unbelief. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. We saw last time that this is the doctrine of unconditional election. God has a people. He has chosen and called out a people for himself. Verse 28 says that the father gives the sheep to the son. Ephesians one four says that God chose us in Christ. And remember, this has to be the case if we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This this election has to be unconditional for it to truly be grace. Grace that is based ultimately in and on us is simply not grace. Grace that is ultimately up to us to actualize and complete is it's not grace. John 1.13 says that we are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the doctrines of grace. We are born of God. Romans 9.16 says that it depends not on human will, but on God who has mercy. Salvation is God's work alone according to God's will alone. He is a sovereign God and a gracious God who saves His people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's all we mean with the doctrines of grace. And He makes sure that it happens. God's will works. God's grace is effective. Look at verse 27. Where this is the doctrine of irresistible grace. Jesus says, My sheep... Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. Remember, irresistible grace, maybe not the most helpful term. What we mean is effectual, effective grace. God's grace works. That's all that I mean. Uh, The sheep hear, and they follow. God, the Father, gives to the Son a people. The Son gives to those people eternal life. Life, it happens. We're going to see this so beautifully next week. I'm excited. John chapter 11 is one of the best chapters in the Bible. I've said that every chapter in John. They're so wonderful. But it's, it's, it's like Christ teaches and explains the doctrines of grace in chapter 10. And then he illustrates and demonstrates the doctrines of grace in chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. That's us. Dead. Jesus comes to Lazarus. Jesus calls to Lazarus. Jesus literally speaks words of life. Jesus literally commands life. And his powerful, effective call gives that life to Lazarus. And then Lazarus responds. Then he obeys and he walks out of the tomb. Regeneration precedes faith. God speaks. Life is given. God's people live and respond. I want you to see that God's grace is gloriously effective and irresistible. It works. It gives life. The sheep hear and follow. The sheep are given eternal life. And that proves the fifth doctrine of grace circumstances are terrible wars rumors of wars relationships work bad circumstances what might happen could any of these things be so bad that they could separate you from the love of god in christ jesus our lord fifth doctrine of grace the doctrine of the perseverance better yet the preservation of the saints look at verse 28 i give them eternal life And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just in case that's not clear. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Eternal life cannot be lost. Eternal life by definition is enduring and unending. Nothing can snatch us from God's omnipotent hand nothing can separate us uh, from his love there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus and all that can only be true you can only truly have confidence and security if god's grace is electing and affecting and securing you are safe in god's preserving hand next week i really want to emphasize come back again You're safe in God's providential hand. I want you to see that next week as Christ proclaims his love for Lazarus and then he waits and then he lets Lazarus die. Some of you maybe feel like you're being let to die right now. The beginning of John 11 is so, so helpful. God's hand preserves and it's also God's hand of providence and you desperately need to understand God's providence. Next week, come next week. But God's grace is electing, affecting, and securing. And I obnoxiously, firmly, but I think, biblically believe that anything else is not truly grace. Anything else will will cut into your security, your peace, and your joy as it implicitly turns you back to yourself. Jesus wants to be very clear in His revelation of God's glorious grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord period. It's his work, not ours. And that's such good news because he does not fail. I aim at and will and begin all sorts of things that I ultimately fail and never complete. But I am sure, along with Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And I am sure that that is my only hope. Again, if I could mess it up, I would. And so my only hope is that it is in His hands. Grace is our hope. How desperately you daily need to know God in His grace. And what that grace actually is and does. It affects your salvation. It secures your salvation. It actually saves. Christ is precious because Christ is gracious. Christ is glorious because Christ is gracious. And point number three Christ is glorious and Christ is gracious because Christ is God and God is one. You'll notice that the subject of each of points two through five is is God. That was on purpose. The whole point of this text, the uh, the climax, the climactic conclusion uh, of this passage is verse 30. I and the Father are one. The point here is the unity and the oneness of God, the Father and the Son. And so the subject of each point being God is to emphasize that Christ who has just revealed himself as the good shepherd is one with God. He is God. They say, tell us plainly, if you are the Christ, he says, I'll do you one better. And he tells them that he is Yahweh, God in the flesh. That's what he has to be saying in verse 30. It has to be. Yes, in the context, Jesus is in part saying that his will and his work are one with the Father. There is a unity of will in God. They're on the same team. They're doing the same thing. They are God, one God. Jesus has just said that no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. They are one in this work. Down in verse 37, Jesus says that he is doing the works of his Father. We saw this back in 639. Jesus says that he has come not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. Side note, if you want to look at that verse, 637, what is the Father's will, by the way, in that verse? That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. There again is the doctrine. Unconditional election, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, all rolled into one tight, compact statement. The will and work of the Father and the Son are one. They're perfectly united. And that itself would be enough of a claim to deity. Who of us perfectly wills and works the will of God? And as we're going to see tonight, come to prayer tonight at 5. We're to pray in the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your will be done. I don't know about you, but if we're honest with ourselves, how much of what we actually pray is ultimately in pursuit of our own will. How much of our prayers are actually profoundly selfish? We're seeking to increasingly orient our our prayers around God and His glory and the prayers that He gives us in Scripture. Come tonight at 5. But we want to will the Father's will, though we fail. So we pray for the Father's will. We pray not to conform His will to our will. Hey God, I had this really good idea here's the thing that I think that you should probably do that maybe you didn't think about. Um, Here, I'm going to tell you, you should do this thing. No, we're not trying to conform him to our will. We're trying to more and more conform our will to to his perfect will. So we, we want to do this, but we fail to do this perfectly. Jesus, though, perfectly wills and works the Father's will. And that must then mean that Jesus is God. Because that's ultimately what he's claiming in verse 30. Not just that he is one with God's will, but that he is one with God's essence. He says in verse 38, the father is in me and I am in the father. This is the mysterious yet foundational and fundamental doctrine of the Trinity. If you're not worshiping the triune God, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping a false God. God, the father, one God, three persons. Shorter Catechism, question six says, three persons are in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance, and equal in power and glory. Why is Christ glorious? Why is one true sight of Him, by faith, the answer to all that ails? Because He's God. Because He Himself is light. And life. He, the Son, made flesh, is the same in substance and equal in power and glory to the Father. Listen, if He's not that, again, He's nothing. Stop wasting your time with Him. Because that's what we need. God Himself is what we need. And Christ is God Himself. Come to us. Christ is the one who made us. And He is the one who made us for Him to find our life and fulfillment and everything in Him. Henry touched on this Thursday in Bible study more coming this week don't miss it Romans 11:36 it's huge for from him and through him and to him are all things I told you how important prepositions are catch those three prepositions for from him and through him and to him are some things all things and then the conclusion is to him be glory forever amen there are so many verses just single verses single truths single claims of scripture that if we would just believe that one thing everything would change what if we actually lived and believed as if from him and through him and to him is everything what if we lived as if we existed to glorify god first and foremost and in so doing we actually enjoyed him forever What if we actually found abundant life and ultimate good and pleasure and joy and peace in him? That's what Christ is claiming. He is claiming to be the God of good, the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Psalm 16. We know that that's what he's claiming in verse 30. There's debate about verse 30 and the commentators will dozens of pages arguing what is Christ really claiming in verse 30. We know what Christ is claiming in verse 30 because of how the Jews respond to what Christ is claiming. They understood what he was claiming. Look at verse 31. Here's their response to his claim. They picked up stones again to stone him. And We just went through this back in chapter 8, verse 59. There was no question in their minds what Christ was claiming. He was claiming divinity. He was claiming to be ultimate reality, to be God himself standing before their blind eyes. And so they say in verse 33, it's for blasphemy that we are going to stone you because you being a man make yourself God. You see, they understand what he's claiming and they refuse to believe what he is claiming. Unbelief. And how ironic, by the way. Notice their claim. How ironic is their claim. You, a man, make yourself God. When in reality, the very thing that has happened, 14, is that you, God, have made yourself man. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His only glory from the Father, full of grace and truth. But they clearly have not seen. God is one, and Christ is one. Is God, and thus to miss this, to miss Christ, is everything. It's to miss everything. So this is sin. Church, sin should make us so sad. Our sin, first and foremost, should make us so sad. Right? Does your sin make you sad? Are you broken? I had a wonderful week. God was very gracious to us this week. I got like impatient with my kids one night. Um, I'm not a yeller, but I'm a cold, angry, just cold and simmering, passive-aggressive, angry. I, just broke. I was so sad afterwards. I had to like, go back in and talk to them and, and apologize to them. Right? How foolish. How foolish. God is so good to me. Here's these five wonderful girls, and they like spill something, or they don't get ready quick enough, and I can get short and impatient and angry. Like, how foolish is that sin? It made me very sad. I spent an hour just kind of praying and confessing and broken and, and just thankful for the Lord's grace, and went and apologized to them, and, and God is so good. Right? We should really hate sin and it should make us so sad do you see how stupid sin is and how dumb it is it should make us sad our own sin but also the sin of others when our eyes by grace have been opened to the glory of Christ and we see when you when you walk out these doors you are going to be surrounded by just the vast majority of people 99% of the people around you utterly blind and lost and stuck in their sin and that should make us sad. Like Paul in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, our, our hearts should break for the lost. And so, again, what, what hope is there? Here is this God and His glory so clear and they don't see it. They miss it. We're so prone to miss it. What should we do? What, what can we do? Points 4 and 5 briefly will help us. Now, this will be kind of be your application. These will be much, much shorter. Look at point... Number four, God's word is unbreakable. It's pretty neat what's happening here. Uh, The argument in verses 34 through 36 seems complicated and convoluted. It need not be. The Jews are upset that Jesus is claiming to be God. Look at Jesus' response. This is a bit unexpected at first. In verse 34, he says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said... You are gods. That's a quote from Psalm 82.6. So Jesus quotes there, Psalm 82.6. Is it not written, I said, you are gods, if he, God, called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, Christ, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? I, what? What? let's unpack that real quick. What's going on there? Jesus is quoting the Old Testament He's quoted Psalm 82.6. There's debate when you get into Psalm 82.6 over who these little g lowercase gods are there. In the context of Psalm 82, it's most likely that God there is speaking to human judges. He is speaking to judges who are supposed to be acting as his agents on the earth, judging justly, representing uh, him well in the world. The judges are failing to do that. So God is rebuking them. In Psalm 82, they are unjust judges, falsely and failing to represent the one just God. Jesus references that verse and references God, big G, use of God, little g there, not to prove his deity. Jesus has already claimed that. He's going to defend it again in a moment through his works. But here in this argument, Jesus is simply pointing out that the Jews have no logical grounds for their charge of blasphemy. Jesus is simply saying, hey, if if Scripture at times calls men little g-gods, why are you so upset about me calling myself the Son of God? Jesus is not denying that he is actually God. He's just logically pointing out their inconsistency. Your own law calls men God at times, so you cannot accuse me of blasphemy for calling myself God. Again, that, that, that's all he's doing. There. He's just pointing out the silliness and the foolishness of their, of their unfounded arguments. But what I don't want you to miss is what he says at the end of verse 35. Here's what I want to focus on as we wrap up. He says, this is a very important phrase from Jesus himself. Scripture cannot be broken. Note what Jesus just did. Jesus just constructed an entire argument based upon one word in the Hebrew scriptures, the word gods. Jesus has such confidence in the scriptures. Jesus has such a high view of the scriptures that he leans the whole weight of his argument on this one single word. Which I think logically and necessarily implies that Jesus also believed that every single word in the Bible has that same weight and authority. Because he believes that every single word in the Bible is spoken and inspired by God himself. I love to think about Jesus, who is the word of God, here, quoting the word of God, which is the very word that he himself spoke and inspired. It's his word from him, about him, and then here we see him using that word to point to him and to defend himself. It's it's beautiful what God does with this wonderful word. The whole thing Jesus believed was inspired by God. We refer to this today by the somewhat unhelpful, convoluted term, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That's, that's a mouthful. Verbal, we just mean it's, it's very words, not general ideas, not like Scripture makes you feel nice and respond to some truths that come out as you subjectively read it. No, the very words are inspired. Plenary just means it's every single one of those words that are inspired, 2 Timothy 3.16, that are breathed out by God himself. This God of infallible truth, where scripture speaks, God speaks. Thus scripture does and can only speak the truth. And that makes the word and the absolute truthfulness and trustworthiness of the word, this is the very foundation of the Christian faith. That means that if you remove the Scripture as this infallible foundation, if you limit the truthfulness or the trustworthiness of Scripture, whatever you have, whatever you're left with, is not Christian, ultimately. Christians have a high view of Scripture because Christ has a high view of Scripture. And Christ is life. And since Scripture is the only means through which we meet Christ. Since it is the medium through which Christ is revealed and related to us, the scriptures are everything to us, personally and corporately. God forbid that we would doubt them, that we would call them to question, set them aside, limit them or minimize them or qualify them in any way. I mean, this is Satan's first lie. This is how Satan operates. Did did God really say And he casts doubt upon the trustworthiness of God's word. And how much doubt is being cast on the trustworthiness of God's word, even in churches today. Uh, You know, this part, uh, gender and sexuality, and this part about this. You know, it doesn't really mean this. You don't really have to listen. Listen, you start pulling out any of that. You, You limit the trustworthiness of the whole thing. This is our foundation. The scripture is literally God's word. It's the very words of God himself to man. Christ believed that, and he proves that here in quoting this one word as proof for his argument. And thus, believing in Christ includes believing in the word in the way that Christ believed it as well. You cannot deny the word of Christ and believe in Christ. You just, you can't. You cannot deny God's word and claim to be following Christ. You cannot separate the word incarnated, Jesus Christ, from the word inscripturated, the Bible. It is the living and active Word of eternal life because it reveals Him. The Word who gives eternal life. And He does that through this Word. Calvin says this. He says, This is the principle that distinguishes our religion from all others, that we know that God has spoken to us. He goes on to say, We owe to the Scripture the same reverence as we owe to God, since it has its only source in Him and has nothing of human origin mixed with it. See, God's word is unbreakable. It cannot be doubted. It cannot be faulted. The scripture cannot be emptied of power by showing that it it is an error because it does not err. In all that it affirms, it affirms truth. And ultimately, the truth that it affirms is Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Be very, very careful. Be very, very careful about that, 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 that whisper of doubt that we bring in to God. Did God, did, did God really say? It's here. It's clear. Listen to him. What is your view of Scripture? Does it reflect Christ's view of Scripture? We read Psalm 119 in the Scripture reading because I'm obsessed with Psalm 119 and you're generally stuck listening to what I'm reading and doing at the time. Um, just You need to spend time in Psalm 119. We just read the psalmist standing in awe of the word, rejoicing at the word like one who's found a great treasure, loving the law, doing the law, delighting in the law. Does your relationship with the word reflect that in any way? We Christians are sometimes sad and dissatisfied and depressed for various reasons, but often in those times we have nothing to do with the word that is life and light. And delight. Jesus says you can't live without it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's our food. Because it is in that word that Christ and his abundant life is found. So learn to love the word. Start by actually using the word. Ask God to help you. J.I. Packer writes in his book on the Puritans, to the Puritan, the Bible was in truth the most precious possession that this world Affords Is this your most precious possession that you have in this world? The Puritan's deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture, and serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect his written word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it And pour over it. And then to live out and give out its teaching. That's wonderfully put. God's word is our most precious possession. Reverence for God means reverence for the word. There's no reverence for God's word. no reverence for God. One of the best and surest evidences that you love Jesus is that you love his word. If you do not love his word, you have little reason to believe that you love the God of that word. What's your relationship like? With God's Word. There's nothing more indicative of your relationship with the Lord. God's Word is unbreakable. God is totally reliable and thus so is His Word. God's Word is glorious because of its source and subject and that subject is Christ. If it is a sight of the glory of Christ that we need, then it is the Word that we need because that is how we see Him by faith. My only hope is that, as, is that as the word is preached, is why we pray at the beginning, my only hope is that the Spirit works through that word to open the eyes of my heart and your heart to give us a glimpse of the all-glorious Christ. What if one sight of his glory could really deliver all that you are looking for? And What if that glory is only found in this word? Wouldn't we look? Wouldn't we listen? Wouldn't we give great time and attention to the unbreakable word of God That reveals the unsurpassable son of God. The one who is both all powerful and glorious. And compassionate and kind. I just want you to see it. I'll leave you with this. And then I'll be done. Number five. God's Christ is compassionate. Wait a second. Where is that? Where do we see that? In the text. We've seen the unbelief. We've seen its true nature. And it's picking up. The stones. They pick up stones to kill the God of life. We've seen the accusation of blasphemy. Back in verse 20, they've accused Him of lunacy and being demon-possessed. How does Christ respond to all this? With another invitation. Look at verses 37 and 38 and we're done. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But... This is so gracious. They're trying to kill him. Look at what he says to them. But if I do those works, even if you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So many important John words in that phrase. Key words. Believe, know, and understand. Jesus wants them to believe so that they may know the Father and him and one. What does John link all of those words to throughout this book? Life. Life. They're seeking his death and yet Christ still offers them life. They are sinfully and stubbornly refusing to believe and yet he still kindly invites them to believe and live. This is Christ. Christ. How little we respond to attack and accusation and anger like Christ does here. Christ never excuses or allows or ignores sin. But he always graciously invites sinners to come to him for the forgiveness of those sins. We are attacked. We are so prone to attack back. He is attacked. And he invites. He pleads. Believe. And live. What a glorious and good Christ. There is no one Like this. Remember, only a Jesus could invent a Jesus. What an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. This man, this God man, Jesus Christ. What if he is all that he reveals himself to be here? So don't miss the foolishness of unbelief. Consider his claims. Consider the evidence. What else could explain this man? Don't miss the teaching of his absolute grace. Oh, the grace that is greater than all of our sins. Oh, so much sin. His grace is greater. That's amazing. Don't miss his big claim to be God himself. What if he is? What if God has come? What if God has spoken through this unbreakable word? And what if that word contains an invitation to you, dead sinner, to come to him for the forgiveness of those sins? To come to the only one who can forgive those sins because he is the only one who came to take on those sins and die for those sins and rise again. Something must be done about your sin. Either Christ has done something about it on the cross or you will have to do something about it yourself in hell. And so don't miss the kindness of his closing invitation here. Believe. Let me give Spurgeon the closing words. Here's how Spurgeon closed... One of his sermons on this text. only The way that only Spurgeon can do it. Here's what he says. He says, The devil wants you to wait, for he knows that he can come and steal away the good seed of the kingdom. But if the Lord should give you the grace to decide for him at once, if you were to believe on Jesus now, what joy there would be among the angels. They would ring the bells of heaven and rejoice over lost ones found. What peace there would be in your own heart. And what thankfulness and delight there would be among the people of God when they heard of it. Only believe. Look to the all-glorious Christ and live. If you would bow with me, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, my words are finished. Father, Your Word is never finished. Your Word does not return to You void. Your Word is breathed out by You. Your Word is living and active. Your Word is the means uh, through which You grant new life in Christ. Father, we ask that You would work through Your Word. Father, for those who are here this morning who uh, do not have new life in Christ, Father, make them aware make them miserably aware of their sin and their helplessness and hopelessness. Father, then you use that to direct them to the Christ who is life, who is kind and compassionate and who forgives sins and grants life freely and graciously. Father, we pray that you would work through your word in bringing sinners from death to life this morning. Father, for those of us who have, by your grace, already been moved um, from death to life, Father, how prone we are to wander, how quick we are to slip back into sin and self. Father, give us a sight of the glory of Christ. Compel us. Convince us that He is life. Forgive us for how quick we are to seek and try and find life and pleasure and joy in the things of this world. Father, show us that it is only found in Him and that it is truly found in Him. We 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 pray that we may increasingly find great peace. And rest and joy in Jesus. Father, only you uh, can do that by your spirit, through your word. And so we ask now that you would. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.